What is going on, FA Nation? We have a huge UFC 254 card this weekend. I'm Dan Malin. I am joined, as always, by our resident cornerman, Mike Alexander. Mike, how you doing on this Thursday evening? Doing pretty good, Dan. This is pretty much the best card of the year, certainly the best of the pandemic. Uh, so, you know, we're probably not seeing one this stacked again for a while. Last fight on Fight Island. A lot riding on this Saturday. Yeah, d- completely agree. It's the biggest card of the year, especially during uh, the, uh, I guess, post-COVID or during COVID or whatever. Um, is Habib uh, Gaethje, is this the biggest fight of the year out of every any card that we've seen so far? From an after MMA standpoint, absolutely. These guys are such good fighters. They're so good at what they do. You know, Gaethje, uh, he's got a good following, but he's not a mainstream personality yet. Khabib is well known, but he's very dry uh, with his, you know, Dagestani lifestyle. And, um, you know, so he doesn't quite draw the same numbers, but uh, I think they already are expecting this to be the, the biggest UFC event of all time. That tends to happen every year because things get bigger and bigger, right. but still worth noting. All right. Uh, we're going to get to the fight breakdown very soon, uh, but this card is a little different. Uh, the main card is supposed to kick off around 2 p.m. Eastern time. That's 11 a.m. Pacific time if you're in California, Oregon, Washington. I think Vegas is mountain time, so that'd be noon. Anyway, uh, so it's a strange start for this card in particular. So with that said, you know, I know we always hash out when the playbook comes out, when the videos come out. When are the playbook and videos coming out for this particular card? Because it is starting so much earlier on a Saturday for us. Yeah, it should all be out tomorrow pretty early. Um, got most of it uh, wrapped up, just putting the finishing touches on. Um, and then also worth noting uh, on, on both sites, but particularly DraftKings, um, the pricing, I don't want to say it's softer than usual, uh, but it's not hard to build lineups this week, especially with some of the options down below 8K. So, uh it's it's a good week to get into it if you've never really built an MMA DFS lineup. You won't have a hard time, I don't think. All right. So let's just dive into the fight breakdown. Uh, we'll start off with the main event. Now, if you're new to the MMA DFS podcast, we are anticipating a few new listeners for this podcast just because this is such a huge card. Uh, Mike and I basically did a podcast Monday night. It's about 15 to 18 minutes long. It kind of tells the story. Mike tells the story beautifully. I just kind of sat and listened and asked asked like three questions. Uh, But it tells the story of how Habib and and Gaethje got to this moment. But we'll do a quick fight breakdown um, just in case you missed that one. We do recommend going back and listening to that one. But we've got Habib Nurmagomedov, uh, 9,200 versus Justin Gaethje, 7,000. This is a lightweight unification championship bout. This is five rounds. Talked about it earlier this week. Habib is coming in as a minus 335 favorite. At the time I did the notes, that was like 16 hours ago at 5 a.m. this morning. Um, they match up pretty well in terms of size and length. Uh I'm guessing that Gaethje wants to keep this fight upright. He lands 7.74 significant strikes per minute while absorbing over eight strikes per minute. All seven of his fights in the UFC have been decided by knockout or TKO. He's 5-2 and two in that span with four straight wins, including an upset over Tony Ferguson at UFC 249 back in May. Habib can easily win this fight in a variety of ways, but you have to imagine he wants to get it to the mat. He's a really good wrestler. He's a smart, tactical fighter, and he averages five takedowns per 15 minutes of action. 
He's 12 and 0 in the UFC, 28 and 0 in his professional career. Uh, he's only fought twice in the last two years, but that that's kind of due to the fact that he's such a big draw. You know, he doesn't need to be one of these UFC fighters that's fighting three or four times a year. You know, he's built up the resume. He gets the kind of leeway. He only needs to fight once or twice a year. In this case, he's fought once in the last, each of the last two years. I'm probably picking Habib to win, but if I'm building 20 lineups, which is what I normally like to do for UFC cards, I need to mix in Gaethje. One, because the $7,000 price tag is just too good to pass up for a guy that could win this in the first two rounds. Um, two, he also provides immense salary relief, but even he's a main event guy. He's going to be going five rounds. He's going to be a bit of a chalky play. Um, I want to know your thoughts on who wins this fight real quick. And then if you're okay, stacking this fight in cash games, which even in cash games, 50 fifties, double ups, even triple ups, that'll be a popular ploy. So let's start with the, with the stacking and, and also note, that since it is a five-round fight, as you mentioned, uh, it's the only five-round fight on the card. All the other fights are three-round fights. Uh, it's reserved for main events and title fights. That's two more rounds than the other fights, so you naturally are going to expect a much bigger score unless the fight does end early, which does happen. Uh, but, you know, you've got two very high-caliber fighters in there. They do tend to see the championship rounds, I feel like, more often than not. So that just makes it a really smart play. You don't want to build a lineup without one of these two guys if you're in GPPs, unless you're building, even with 20 lineups, you know, you may have one without without one of these two guys. Uh, you know, if you're building 150, then yeah, maybe you build 20 uh, lineups without one of them, but that's just to get weird. And then on the cash stack, uh, you know, you're stacking cash in MMA, DFS because you want to guarantee the win bonus. Uh, you know, one of these two guys should win the fight. They can come to a draw. It is very, very rare. It's like an NFL draw. It it takes some doing to, to do. And, you know, uh, in a championship fight, it's especially rare. But um, it can happen. But, you know, you're going to get the win bonus. That's where most of your points come from. And you're getting two fighters in a five-round fight. So you've got ten possible rounds, uh, you know, versus – three from any other fighter or, or six from any other stack. So that just gives you a really nice floor. Both of these guys have good pace. Uh, the wrestling is a, is a good way to rack up stats, which Khabib is the best wrestler in MMA. So uh, it's, it's a good stack. And the last thing to note on that is I would anticipate 90 to 95% of cash lineups to have this fight stacked. So if it does go, uh, you know, nuclear and, both guys score 75 plus points, uh, you're going to need it. You're going to need it to compete in cash. And if they don't, you're still only competing with people. So, you know, you're going to go four for four, three for three uh, in, in toss-ups with, with other cash lineups. The fight breakdown. Khabib wants to wrestle. That's all he wants to do. Uh, he He's not a fish out of water when it comes to the striking. It's just... You know, he'd be like middle of the division in, in his if he just didn't wrestle, uh, where, you know, when he wrestles people, he turns them into dust. Uh, it, it's ridiculous. He is relentless. There's stories out there of his training sessions. They're just insane. You know, he has to bring in five, six, seven, eight guys just to do a round. And then the next guy comes in fresh and they just cycle through five, six, seven, eight guys to keep him tired. Like, <laughs> Imagine having that kind of wrestling that, you know, eight other humans couldn't, you know, match what you can put out. It's craziness. That's what he does in the cage as well. 
He's he's relentless. He's grinding. Um, it's it's the Dagestani style. He's got a base in combat sambo. That's where it comes from. Uh, but you know he does have power in in his right hand if he does throw it. He's got a really nice unorthodox uppercut, so it's not out of the question that he could knock out Justin Gaethje. But he doesn't want to be on the feet. Gaethje, he absolutely does want to be on the feet. He does not want to get put on the mat. That is the danger zone because Khabib very calmly ties you up, beats you up. He can submit you. We saw him submit both Conor McGregor, Dustin Poirier. Uh, it, it's well within. Um, his, his skill set, but really he just wants to not take chances. Gets on top, rides you, and, and hits you over and over and over. If you're the wrong opponent, he will even talk a little smack to you, uh, especially <laughs> if you're Conor McGregor. That was some of the best smack, smack talk ever. You know, he said, we're talking now, uh, you know, as he's on top of the guy raining down punches. <laughs> so, you know, Khabib is actually an entertaining dude, especially in the cage, uh, but, you know, it, it doesn't always come through. Um so all that said, how does this fight break down? Uh, how does it play out? I think that the early going is going to be Khabib's typical, you know, he's going to get a little bit of wrestling. He's going to kind of slow the pace down a bit. But Gaethje is going to get out there with his leg kicks. He's going to have some success. And somewhere in the second or early third round, it's going to it's going to be a, a turning point. Khabib is either going to have to switch it on and show that he can, he can take Justin Gaethje down and hold him there. Or he's going to have to survive on the feet because Gaethje has a wrestling background. Um, I believe it was collegiate, uh, but, you know, nothing nothing accomplished. He's got the skill set, but, you know, he's never attempted a UFC takedown. There's a reason for that. It's not his strong suit. Right. Um, he just has to shut down Khabib's wrestling enough. He's got to keep Khabib to two of eight takedowns, three of nine takedowns. <clears throat> when he gets taken down, be smart. Don't be impatient. Get back up. And his coach, Trevor Whitman, had a really nice interview this week uh, where, you know, he said, losing rounds doesn't mean you lost the fight. That's what you have to do. You, you have to be willing to say, OK, he's going to hold me down and I'm going to lose this round, but I'm not going to lose the fight right here. I'm not going to get submitted. I'm not going to get beat to a pulp. I, I just have to weather this storm. We get stood back up the next round and then I can get right back at it. And Gaethje's the perfect guy to do that. He's the calmest fighter you've ever seen. It's just he was born to be violent and doesn't bother him if he's getting bombed on. Um, you know, Khabib probably isn't going to do that on the feet. He might do that on the mat. Uh, and Gaethje's one of the few people I've got some confidence in being able to take that beating, get into his corner and reset, come back out ready to go. So really good fight, really good price on Gaethje, both betting wise and on, on, the, on DraftKings. Uh, you know, in, in the Haymaker, I'm going to split these down the middle and probably overlap on one or two lineups. That's not a popular strategy uh, stacking in GPPs, but, you know, probably about eight or nine percent of the time it works out that a main event GPP stack can uh, pay off in a, G in a GPP. So something to consider if you're like, uh, you know, I just want to have both of these guys and I want to <laughs> play a GPP. You can do it. Just know you're up against the odds. All right. Good stuff, as always. Uh, ultimately, you're you're thinking Habib maybe walks away with the win? Gaethje, man. It's okay. it's razor thin, but, okay. you know, if, if we're talking DFS, if we're talking betting, uh, it's it's the value that I just can't say no to. Um, oh, and, I agree. If you're just looking at, like, the, the lines on each guy, like, there's really, I don't think there's any point in putting, you know, money on minus 335 for Habib. I'd take a shot on Gaethje, whatever his odds are. 
You know, it's not a, Habib, a bad Habib line either, though. We're used to seeing him be like a five, six, seven hundred right. uh, favorite, and you know, this is this is probably the best odds you're ever going to get on him again if he wins this fight. All right, we'll move on to the next fight on the card. Uh, this is the co-main middleweight bout between Jaron Kenyonier, eighty-two hundred versus Robert Whitaker, eight thousand. This is about as split as you can possibly be. Kenyonier is. Minus 115 is the favorite. Whitaker is minus 105. Uh, there's actually a couple fights on this card where the odds are that close. It's it's very rare to see. Yeah. Um, the key to winning here might be in scoring takedowns and getting it to the ground, although I don't necessarily think either fighter wants to go that route. Uh, it's, it just seems like the perfect corner man video fight right here. Whitaker is 10-1 in his last 11 UFC fights. The lone loss came to Israel Adesanya. Nothing to be ashamed of. Uh, great price tag for a guy who can hit 11 to 12 X value, even with a win by decision, as long as the volume is there for him. Uh, it's been about three and a half years since he's won via knockout or TKO. Um, Kenyonier has a four inch reach advantage over Whitaker in this fight. He's, he's six and four in the UFC, but he's running a three fight winning streak. Now that he's dropped down to middleweight, he was a light heavyweight overall. He just kind of looked doughy. Didn't look great in the in the light heavyweight division. Drops down to middleweight, and he's looked like a really solid contender. Um, yeah, it's, it's a great example of you know, just because you can put the mass on doesn't mean you should as a fighter. Right. Uh, and I mean, he's a shredded middleweight, but he actually fought at heavyweight originally when he came into the UFC. I um, heard that, but I didn't. I I wasn't <laughs> sure if that was necessarily yeah, true. So I mean, five eleven heavyweight. He weighed in at like two forty, so it's like he just didn't cut weight, and then he cut weight to two hundred five his next fight out. But um, you know, it, it's a nice it's a nice thing that a nice lesson that you don't have to put on all that muscle mass. You can be a better fighter, possibly faster. Right. Uh, personally, I'm kind of leaning towards Kinnanier with the finish inside the distance at either in rounds one or two. Not discounting Robert Whitaker by any means. Uh, I know he is the younger fighter here. I I think he's only like 29 years old, but his resume in the UFC just kind of goes on and on and on. Based on the amount of fights he's had, you'd think he's probably in his 30s. I think he's still under 30. Um, but I'm going to ride the wave of Kinnanier and I'm predicting a finish within the first two rounds for JC, but at the same time, if I'm building 20 lineups, I'm I'm mixing both guys basically pretty evenly. Um, this this is a really good toss up for a co-main. Yeah, great fight. Uh, because it's hard to predict, and because there's also a little chance that it it doesn't have the pace you need if it goes to a decision, especially on the Whitaker side. You know, to hit 82 points um that so you're aiming for 10x to 12x value 10x is kind of the cash value you're looking for 12x uh is the gpp value you're looking for um you know to hit that you know 80 or 82 points in a decision is not a given um you, you still need to have the pace and whitaker he's so used to fighting five round fights uh he can take his time at points you know in his fight with till like he had Darren Till in trouble in spots and then just didn't keep keep pressing, you know, because he didn't want to take the, the chance. Um, he could do that here and just be a, a better striker, a better technician than Cannoneer and, and win a fairly one-sided decision without having to really expose his, his own neck. Um, Cannoneer, though, very dangerous. You know, we, we just talked about coming down from, from light heavyweight and heavyweight. Uh, so he's really strong. He's got insane length for the division good kicks good strikes um he's an absolute psycho 
uh, believes in some some funny stuff like crystals and um, he's from Alaska. So it's like a whole bag of, you know, kind of what you want in a person that's willing to get into a cage to fight another human being. Uh, yeah, that makes him dangerous. Uh, he kind of uh, he'll walk forward with his hands down at times, you know, do, do some unorthodox things. That, that's also trouble for Whitaker. Uh, you know, we saw somebody that was long and powerful knock him out in Israel Adesanya. Cannoneer is not Adesanya, but has got some of those similarities that could be a problem if Robert Whitaker's chin is not trustworthy. You know, we had some questions about it coming into um, his fight with Darren Till. It was basically if his chin holds up, he beats Till. He did get knocked down in that fight. So I don't think the chin issues are gone. They don't go away. You know, they can get a little bit better with time, but you're always, you know, each time you get knocked out, you're more likely to get knocked out. It's, it's a concussion, basically. Um, so, you know, I originally wanted to pick Cannoneer. And more and more, I'm seeing people picking Cannoneer. And that's kind of making me wonder if Whitaker is not the, the smarter bet, smarter play, because the money that's come in on Cannoneer, uh, because of the ownership Cannoneer is going to have it's it's just you know his win like you said is a knockout in the first or second round that's that's his danger so um that that given maybe Whitaker could be a sneaky player value uh, he does have some wrestling he's not a great wrestler but he's solid he will use it when the opportunity presents itself and that's been a problem for Cannoneer at the heavier weight classes down here he's looked really good when he's gotten taken down he's been very uh active gotten people off his back, gotten right back up. Uh, so really interesting fight will play out. Um, I'm, I'm leaning the Whitaker side at the moment, but that could change, you know, after going to sleep tonight, after going to sleep Friday night, who knows? That's fine. I mean, I, I kind of like it when we're on the opposite ends, ends of the spectrum. And so far that's the case with the first two fights. Move on to the uh, third fight on the card, or I guess it's the third to last fight, uh, depending on how you look at it. Alexander Volkov, 8,600 versus Walt Harris, 7,600. This is a heavyweight bout. Volkov enters as a minus 185 favorite. Uh, for a weight class that usually provides some sloppy, sluggish, tiresome fights at times, this is one that should be pretty fun to watch, in my opinion. Uh, Volkov's going to carry a slight height and reach advantage, but uh, Harris l rarely lets fights go to the cards. Um, and... For those who know Harris's backstory over the last year or two, this is just his second fight since the unfortunate death of his stepdaughter. Uh, his first fight back came against Alistair Overeem. Didn't go well for him. He lost in the second round. Uh, but he has noted in many interviews that, you know, he's he's had a full 13 weeks to prepare for this fight against Volkov. He's never come into a fight more focused than he is right now. So, I mean, he's... He's shaken off that nostalgia of, you know, first fight back since since a, a tragedy. And I, I'm using Not nostalgia that poorly. Right, yeah, I'm, I'm using nostalgia poorly. I could have found a much better word. Uh, but Volkov is priced up, and I typically never really liked the return with him. He lost to Curtis Blades over the summer via decision in what was an absolute boring fight against Curtis Blades. And Curtis Blades actually was... Uh, He's very confident and cocky in how he won the fight. And, and Dana White knocked him down a few pegs, too, and said, listen, you're not ready for a title fight. Um, poor showing from Volkov. But for me, I think I might take the discount here and go with Harris. I, I might mix in both. I don't like going with a lot of exposure to heavyweight fights, but I do like the discount with Harris. 
if he is coming in with a clearer mindset, um, you know, second fight back since since the tragedy with his family. I think I'll take Harris here because we have seen the upside with him. Uh, Volkov, I'll mix into one or two lineups. Not incredibly excited about this fight overall, but I do think Harris has uh, ITD upside with this price tag. Definitely interested on both sides. Uh, you, you broke it down on Harris pretty nicely. Uh, the dude is a freak athlete. Uh, he's he's getting a little on in years. He's 37 now, so he's not a spring chicken. But it's still, he's got that explosion. Uh, he's probably one of the biggest people in the UFC. You know, he he is just a monster. Um, and in the, in the Overeem fight, uh, you know, two things to note. He came out and he dropped Overeem. Was was just a beautiful start to the first round. Knocks him down, is punishing him. Uh, has him on the mat again, is punishing him some more. The fight was close to being stopped, but was not. And then Harris goes for a front kick, and he's exhausted, and he and he just misses Overeem's chin, uh, slips off his shoulder, falls down, and Overeem wrestles him from there, survives the round, and Harris is just gassed. You know, he didn't train the way you normally would for a fight because of everything that had happened in his personal life. Uh, seeing him on UFC Embedded, uh, he was they had you know they are out on the beach uh, in Abu Dhabi there this week and. He looks like he's in much better shape. Um, you know, he's still a pretty rotund guy for heavyweight. Like, he's got a belly, but it's on a huge frame. So, you know, it's kind of like um, a stud defensive tackle. Like, they're always just going to have a belly, but uh, the, the, the muscle underneath doesn't matter. They, they will uh, perform um, with explosion. So he's going to come out, and he's going to go right after Volkov. Uh, they're not – he doesn't, you know, he doesn't play around. He knows his, his path to victory is to come – knock his opponent out in the first half of the fight. Otherwise, he's going to be in trouble. He's going to run out of gas because when you're that big, you just gas unless you're some kind of special uh, talent. And then, um, you know, for Volkov, Volkov's one of the true kickboxers in the heavyweight division. There's not many of them. He uses his kicks. He uses his distance control. He'll use his pace. Um, His pace has kind of become his defense uh, in a a good bit of fights because – he, had, he does have a little bit of the tall man defense where uh, he's 6'7", so he stands really high and can get cracked on his chin. So he's really trying to, to keep people off him by pressing forward and, and then creating space. Um, that worries me with Harris because Harris has really fast hands, and at some point Volkov is going to get hit. Uh, I think Harris is probably going to knock him out if he is able to land clean. And, you know, We've seen Volkov knocked down. We've seen him knocked out. He did do a nice job. The, the storm from Curtis Blades, but Blades doesn't really put it on you. Um, he just wants to to wrestle grind these days, um, unless he can get square on top of you and land elbows. Uh, and then even even Volkov's UFC competition is not the greatest. Like Blades and Fabricio Verdum are really his only, like, marquee fighters. You know, he lost to Derek Lewis at the... Are we willing Derek... to say that Verdum is way past his prime, too? Well, this was back in 28, but even then, yeah, it was it was yeah. Verdum, fairly old. Verdum gassed out. You know, he wasn't in great shape even then. Um, you know, he beat Stefan Struve, who we're going to talk about later. He beat Roy Nelson, but that was Roy Nelson's Big last boys. fight in the UFC. You know, um, and... He's, he, he gets a better rep because of, I think, the Russian thing, the size, uh, and the striking. 
the big the big issue for Walt Harris is if Volkov chooses to wrestle. You know, Volkov's not a good defensive wrestler, but he's got some offensive wrestling. Yeah, he's learned it. He's had to, to to work on it coming over from kickboxing, and he's figured out this is a lot easier if I take a guy down. He can't punch me in the face. Um, and Harris does have a really glaring weakness for takedowns. He's he's just he doesn't get his hips down, and it could be a problem. So, um, great fight to target. I like Harris. The Harris side, he's cheaper. He's going to be popular on DraftKings because of that. But uh, if he if he does win in the first round or two, it's coming with you know the ten point knockdown. Probably a good number of strikes, and, and then ninety point seven, first win, uh, first round win too. Yeah, even seventy, seventy in second, ninety in the first. So you're yeah. you're getting some points there. Mm-hmm. Totally agree. We are finally on the same page. Moving on to the next one, I think we're going to be on the same page too. Philip Hawes, ninety one hundred versus Jacob Malkoon. Uh, could be Jakob Malkoon for all I know. Seventy one hundred middleweight bout. <laughs> he's Australian. He's, he's Australian, so so is Jacob. <laughs> Uh, Haas comes in as a minus 260 favorite. Uh, Very impressive spot for Haas. He fought on the Contender Series about six to seven weeks ago. So to be on the main card of one of the biggest pay-per-views of the year speaks volumes to what the UFC thinks of him. Uh, His highlight reel is littered with impressive knockouts. He features a devastating overhand right that could compromise any opponent early on. He's only six feet tall, but he has a very long wingspan of 77.5 inches. Um, I don't know too much about Malkoon other than that he's 4-0 in his professional career, hasn't fought in over a year. He's making his UFC debut. This is this just seems like one of those fights that the UFC loves to give, maybe an up-and-comer or someone they feel really good about just to get him another win. I mean, Hawes is coming off a contender series win, priced up already this much, heavy favorite. It, it, it just seems like everybody's going to be on Hawes for cash and GPP. So Malkoon is uh, one of the primary training partners for Whitaker. So he's going to be there anyway uh, and, and ready to fight. So they figured, let's let's get him in the ring. Um, you know, and it's also like a, a you know, a bone to throw Whitaker. Uh, you get one of your guys paid here. Uh, yeah, Hawes, they've, they've been after Hawes for a long time, the UFC. And they, um, they tried to get him into the ultimate fighter. Uh, he lost to Andrew Sanchez because he just, his wrestling just wasn't there. But he was a 3-0 fighter at the time. Very raw. But, you know, they could obviously see he's an accomplished wrestler and uh, a very built human being. So, you know, he goes down. He, he goes one and one in World Series of Fighting, loses to Lewis Taylor. Taylor's pretty decent. Uh, Taylor had a, a good PFL career later. Um, but, you know, the UFC saw enough. They called him back to Dana White Contender Series. And Julian Marquez sleeps him with a head kick uh, in the second round because Hall's gassed. You know, Hall's was still four and one at the time as a fighter. Uh, still very raw, getting put in a big spot again. He comes up short, so he goes back. He fights some bums. Then they call him back. You know, he's seven and two now, uh, and he he gets a pretty favorable matchup against Kazmarat Bestiev on Contender Series and destroys him with with a right hand counter uh, that is savage. So as you mentioned, that is a big weapon for him. Could come into play here. Um, Halls could definitely win in the wrestling department if he wants to, but I feel like he's scared to wrestle some of the time because of his gas tank. He does not want to gas out in fights. He's seen the the devastating effect that can have. Um, so, you know, he will use some wrestling. He's a solid favorite for a good reason. Malkoon has no real credentials. But we've seen with some of these uh, Australian and New Zealand fighters lately, like just because they're an unknown doesn't mean they can't throw down. Um 
what was his name? Uh, Joshua Kulabau, I think, who fought Charles Jordan. Uh, really uh, pooched it for, for a lot of my DraftKings lineups um, going, going to a draw with Jordan. So, you know, it, it can happen. Halls is nothing uh, resembling a long-term reliable favorite. So you should be careful there, but lots of upside on Halls to wrestle to get a knockout. Uh, and not a lot to, to like about Malcoon. All right, we'll move on to the next fight. First women's fight that we're going to preview, Lauren Murphy versus Lilia Shekarova. Uh, Murphy is 8,800. Shekarova is 7,400. This is a women's flyweight bout. <clears throat> Murphy's coming in as a minus 230 favorite to win. Uh, similar to the last fight, this seems like a fight where the UFC is trying to feature one fighter over the other. In this case, it's going to be Lauren Murphy. Uh, Murphy had a rough start to her UFC career, going one and three at women's bantamweight. She has since dropped to the flyweight division, and she was four and one in her last five fights, including three straight wins. Uh, the downside is that she tends to let fights go to the cards. That's not something we aren't necessarily new to seeing with a lot of the women's fights. Uh, for Shakarov, it's kind of hard to get a read on her. There are some highlights of her fights on YouTube, but she's fought in awful promotions. It feels like. Uh, she's the first female fighter out of Uzbekistan to make her UFC debut. Uh, she has some good ground and pound. I'll take a couple stabs at her, at her in a GPP. Um, for me, though, I, I hate to say it, but this is one of those fights that I'm currently going very light on. Um, part of me feels like Lauren Murphy might be getting a little long in the tooth. Um, at, she's 36, 37 years old. Um, Shakarova is coming in. Obviously, is a lot behind her a whole country, really, because she's the first women's fighter out of her country to make a UFC debut. I think I might get a little more exposure to Shakarova just for the savings and the potential upset. Um, but at this price tag, it, man, it's 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 just so hard to like really play Lauren Murphy at this price tag. I'm I'm not sure that the volume or the win inside the distance is there for her. Yeah, you know, uh, Murphy is is a tough chick. Uh, I think that probably carries her to a victory here. Shekarova is like loosely connected to Khabib. Um, I think he, he kind of put a, a little birdie in, in the UFC's ear about Shekarova as a late replacement. Uh, he's responsible for bringing the, the MMA scene in Uzbekistan uh, some attention. So, uh, you know, all that said, Shekarova just, you don't know what to count on. Maybe her wrestling is so good that she is able to just out-technique Lauren Murphy for three rounds. But she's also kind of undersized for the division. She's not been fighting professionally very long. She's not going to have you know gotten her body to the place that Lauren Murphy has over the last four or five years. Um, so I, I just think this, there's a strength advantage. And, you know, Lauren Murphy's got some decent wins. You know, Roxy Mataferi, Andrea Lee... Um, you know, she she lost this a decision to Sajera Eubanks, but Eubanks is we've seen pretty decent lately. And then the people she lost to at 135 were mostly pretty solid. So um, I think this is a spot that that Murphy pulls it out. Uh, I do think Murphy's a little bit live inside the distance. Like she could just pure muscle Shakarova in, in the grappling exchange, get on top of her and, and ground and pound her, or even maybe submit her. Like she's not. She doesn't have really many submissions. I don't think any, actually. Um, but, you know, one, one submission in her UFC uh, career. So, you know, it's it's something you've got in your toolbox, uh, uh, you know, rear naked choke most people these days. And if you wind up on somebody's back, it can happen. 
But yeah, unless you're building a lot of lineups, this isn't a fight you're going to heavily target. All right. I'm curious to get your fights on the next card. Uh, I feel like when I, when I was when I was building notes for this one, I felt like I feel like we've talked Magalev, Ankalev, and Ian Kutalaba quite a bit this year. Uh, yeah, uh, we didn't have this podcast going like when when like they first fought, but this is the second time that they fought this year. Really interesting backstory. So Magomed Ankalev is eighty nine hundred. Ian Kutalaba is seventy three hundred. This is a light heavyweight bout rematch. Uh, they fought, I want to say, back in February. And uh, yeah. the fight only lasted about 35 seconds. Uh, Uncle Ev was landing a lot of head kicks, a lot of striking. Ian Kutalaba was looking a little woozy, a little unbalanced, and he was really just playing possum. And we didn't learn this until the referee, in one of the worst stoppages in UFC f- history, uh, blew the fight dead, declared Uncle Ev the winner. And you could just tell that once Ian Kutalaba started reacting as pissed off as he was, uh, he was totally fine. He was just trying to draw Ankalev back in. So the UFC granted a rematch. Uh, but this is coming off of numerous reschedulings due to the pandemic, Kutalaba testing positive for COVID, I think maybe twice, definitely at least once. Um, but overall, Ankalev has won his last three fights in the UFC. He possesses that inside-the-distance upside for a win that we like, and at this price tag, we'll definitely need that because he's 8900 Historically, he hasn't come with a lot of value, I and mean, even inside-the-distance wins don't necessarily come with value at his expensive price tag. The good thing with Kutalaba is that in his last five fights, all five fights have resulted in finishes inside the distance, and he is 3-2 and two in that span. Obviously, one of the losses is... Uh, one that he kind of got screwed over against Akalev eight, nine months ago. If he lands a knockout, he's simply delivering value easily at 7,300. Given that the first fight was a bit of a fluke, how are you reading into the price tags, the odds for this bout, and who do you think comes away the winner in this rematch where we finally decide who is the better fighter? It's it's nine to ten months in the making, Mike. Mike. So who do you think is the better fighter, and who do you think wins on Saturday afternoon? Yeah, I'm all over Ankaliyev. I was the first fight. Uh, I was both times it was rebooked. The line has pretty much been there the same uh, for both rebookings. And now this time, you know, it started out around minus 300 Ankaliyev and, and went up from there. A little, it was like minus 270 this time, but now it's back to, to minus 300 now. P- people are realizing. Kudalaba's got one chance. You know, it, it, it's to just throw the biggest haymaker he can and hope that Ankaliyev blinks and doesn't move his head. If they fight 10 times, you know, Kudalaba maybe knocks him out once or twice. Well, they've been rebooked. <laughs> this is going to be the fourth time, you know. Uh, the time they've been rebooked. You know, not that they actually fought, but, like, right. you know, you're starting to wonder if we're tempting fate with, with Ankaliyev here. It does, it's not, a, you're not going to rest easy until the fight is over, but, you know, I put a really big bet on Ankaliyev the first time around. He's just too clean, too technical, Long reach, both with his legs and his arms. Kudalaba's just not going to get there um, to, to knock him out. And, and Kudalaba's wrestling is also not going to be a strength for him there because Ankaliyev is very strong in that area as well. Um, and on the controversy, I just want to put my two cents in real quick. One, uh, if you pretend to get knocked out, there is a referee in the cage with you whose responsibility it is to stop the fight if you it's get knocked safety. out. It's your safety, yeah. You know, he was still on his feet. That's the, the main harsh criticism is, like, let him get knocked down. What he did that made the ref stop it is he kept looking away from Ankaliyev. And if you take your eyes off your opponent, that means to the referee you're not defending yourself intelligently. 
I will also say this because I watched the fight. It's it's real easy to watch. It it is less than a minute long. <laughs> the referee was fooled. The announcers were fooled. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The judges were fooled. Like the announcers calling the fight, we're not sure if if uh, Kutalaba was really there. Nobody had any idea that he was actually fully there until the end, and you saw his reaction to the fight getting blown early. So if you're that good at acting, you do you do need a little self awareness to think like if I'm this good at faking being hurt they're going to think I'm actually hurt. And my second point is, if you need to go to playing possum 30 seconds into the fight with someone, don't sign that contract. You have no business in that fight. Let somebody else get that fight. Go fight somebody that is on your level. Um, <laughs> stupid strategy. So yeah, uh, all Ankaliyev here. If you're building five lineups, maybe you want to have Kudalaba in one because he. it's going to be a first-round knockout if he does win. Uh, you know, Ankaliyev, we've seen pull a stunt before he got triangled by Paul Craig at the 14 and 52nd mark um, in his UFC debut. So wouldn't, wouldn't be unheard of, but yeah, I'm fairly confident Ankaliyev gets the job done again. Cool. We'll move on to Casey Kenny, 8,700 versus Nathaniel, the prospect Wood, 7,500. I uh, just want to confirm with you first and foremost, this is a catch weight bout at 140 pounds. Okay. Kenny comes in as a minus 175 favorite. Uh, he fought just three weeks ago in a decision win over Highlight Alatang. So this marks his fourth fight of the year. He's 2-1 in 2020. Uh, haven't really seen him uh, get fights to the ground the last few fights, so gaining f- points that way might be off the table. Um, I hate that I'm leaning towards value so much in this card because when I <laughs> I was in agreement with you when I was initially breaking down these fights. It's like, oh, these fights seem really cut and dry. But Nathaniel Wood is one of those guys that I kind of find as a pretty decent value play. I don't think he wins, but I just like the volume that he throws. I think it's pretty easy to say that he throws more volume signature strikes than Kenny will. Kenny's a little bit methodical in his striking game. He only lands about three per minute, but he eats five per minute. Um, I think the higher striking volume will be with Wood. Uh, We may also have the grappling edge with Wood as well. Ultimately, though, Kenny's a really smart fighter, and I think he probably gets the win. Um, that might be a reason to go light on the fight, just because I don't really like Kenny's price tag necessarily. If you haven't really caught my drift, Mike, I've had a really difficult time reading this fight. <laughs> it's a great matchup. I, you're you're right on the money there. It's hard to pick a winner in this one. And <clears throat> as, as tends to happen, the value is easy to gravitate towards. And I'm right there with you. Uh, this is a little bit disrespectful towards Nathaniel Wood, in my opinion. Um, you know, Casey Kenny coming off the performance against Alatang. Yes, that was a great performance. Heli Alatang is a Mongolian wrestler. You know, he's not a guy that's going to come in and have a technical kickboxing match with anyone. Nathaniel Wood would have looked just like that uh, in a matchup with Alatang, and probably would have finished him because he probably would have took him down and submitted him. Um, and that's the problem with Kenny. He just doesn't get very many finishes. Uh, he's not big for the weight. He actually looked really good against Alatang. Looked like he's filled out. He, he was at 125 way back. Um, but, you know, uh, he, he doesn't have that, that devastating power. Good technician. His striking has come a long way. Solid wrestler. Um, but it is interesting to note that he got dominated by a couple of very good wrestlers in Rob Dirichvili. I won't say dominated by Borg because he got right back up from everything Ray Borg threw at him, but Borg still landed. Let me go find it real quick. Uh, a good number of takedowns. 
seven takedowns he was credited for. That's Ray Borg's whole thing is rinse, repeat takedowns. You know, Borg was never, uh, I mean, I would say never in the fight, but Kenny was winning most of that fight. It was close, but um, that was also Ray Borg, the washed version. Um, When Kenny fought Manny Bermudez, he got taken down three times. So, like, uh, my point is that he's not this guy that just is stonewalling people's takedown attempts. He's got a great get-up game, um, you know, and, and he doesn't stop moving for a second. Uh, but, you know, if Nathaniel Wood wins the fight, I think you're right. The pace and some wrestling uh, and possibly a submission finish. I'm, I'm actually mildly interested uh, in Nathaniel Wood as a submission prop. I think I put a bet down at plus 1,000 for Nathaniel Wood by submission. Uh, he's got plenty of them on his record. We've seen Casey Kenny can get put on the mat. Yep. Getting up can actually be a very dangerous spot because you're focused on standing up instead of defending. And that is when, like, your neck can get grabbed. Um, you can get caught in a triangle, things like that. Uh, you know, guys can move around to your back, mount you, uh, and, and now you've got somebody sinking in a rear naked choke. So um, I like Wood. I like the value on him. I don't think Kenny is a bad play if, if you're, you know, feeling Kenny's momentum but, yeah, keep in mind his last two wins were Heli Alatang and Louis Smolka. Neither guy's a UFC fighter uh, for my money. All right, I do apologize because we skipped over uh, this next fight that we will preview. Uh, Stefan Struve, 8,300 versus Ty Tuivasa, 7,900. This is another heavyweight bout. I've actually seen your tweets. Uh, <laughs> I, I think I might know how you're leaning on this one. I'll still break it down. At the time of this writing, uh, these guys are even at minus 110 odds. Rarely do we ever see that, especially for a heavyweight bout. Struve will have a massive size advantage with 9 to 10 inches in height and almost 10 inches in reach. Uh, These are two very large human beings. Uh, If this gets out of the first round, even into the second round, this is going to be one of those heavyweight fights that's going to be sluggish. It'll be ugly. Um, So the good news is that we could potentially see see a, a knockout in the first round. Or we see these guys gas out, and it's a sluggish hug fest for the last two rounds. Uh, Struve is riding a bit of a cold streak. He's 1-4 in in his last five fights. Um, He's 32 years old, but it feels like he's been in the UFC forever. He's been there over 11 years, Um, so he's still surprisingly young, sort of. Um, I know you're feeling to Ivasa in an upset here over Struve. He's 3-3 in the UFC. He's riding a three-fight losing streak. Both guys are in need of a win. Uh, what makes you feeling so good about Bam Bam in this fight? So we'll start off with Struve. He's the easier breakdown. Like you said, very well-traveled UFC vet, Dutch kickboxer, almost seven feet tall. Um, makes him problematic, of course. You know, you see his last fight with Ben Rothwell. Ben Rothwell looks like a child next to him, and Ben Rothwell's 6'5". Um, but, uh, you know, he's always been a guy that, Wins the fights he should lose and loses the fights he should win. We said that about the Ben Rothwell breakdown. was like, Ben Rothwell should really just tee off on... And I'm sorry, it was the other way around. Right, Stefan Struve should really beat Ben Rothwell. Um, you know, it's... it's a, There's nothing Rothwell can do. He's not going to take him down. It's going to be a striking affair. And he was. There were some groin shots in the fight that kind of messed up the flow. And at that point, Rothwell knew he had to go knock Struve out. And he did. Um and that's the problem with Struve is I mean, he's got the tallest tall man defense there could ever be because he's 6'11". When your chin is that high in the air, you just allow your opponent to extend their arm to a point that it maximizes their power. It's like a pitcher throwing a fastball. You know, if you want to throw the ball as hard as you can, you extend your arm and you whip it. 
and that's all you got to do to hit Stefan Struve in the chin. You know, it's way up there, but when you are 6'2 and you can reach your arm up, it's not hard to get to 6'11". Um, but, you know, Struve has done pretty good for himself. Uh, he retired after, I think it was the, the Lima fight, and then the UFC has, you know, kept calling him. He keeps answering the phone, can't seem to walk away from the fight game. Um, you know, he's, he's a nice attraction. The UFC loves it because 6'11 is just... Uh, a bit of a freak show thing in the cage. They they love that sort of thing. Um, he also has nice submissions. You know, with, with those really long legs, those really long arms, he's very dangerous off his back with a triangle or an arm bar. Uh, and if he gets on top of you, he can lock in a head and arm triangle. Um, it's just he's got such leverage. It's it's you could be the best jujitsu practitioner. If a seven foot guy is on top of you, he could have the worst technique and still finish you. And that's true. He doesn't have great technique, but he's he's uh, he's aggressive and is opportunistic with the jiu-jitsu. All right, getting over to Tai Tuavasa. I'm a bit of a Tuavasa fanboy. Um, you know, I, I was I was all about him when he came into the UFC. I liked his some you know his amateur stuff uh, or not amateur early career stuff, and he came in with a bang. Not many people fly- consider Tuavasa fanboy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he came into the UFC and landed a flying knee KO as a heavyweight. Right. Yeah. You know, he's like one of two people to ever do that at heavyweight. Um, and, you know, they gave him, you know, another pretty beatable guy in Cyril Asker. And then he fought Andre Arlovsky, and he put it on Andre Arlovsky. Didn't finish him, but it was a great fight. He comes into the JDS fight, Junior Dos Santos, down under. Um, I, the line was close. I forget if, if JDS was actually, I think it was a slight favorite. But, you know, the line should have been wide for JDS because JDS just, Waited out, um, and waited two of us out. Saw all, the, all all that he had to offer in the striking. Knocked him out in the second round. Once two of us got undisciplined, and that's been the story ever since. You know, he had a close fight with Blagoj Ivanov, but still, you know, got taken down a couple times. Was a little undisciplined in spots. Lost a close decision. Sergey Spivak wrestles him up for you know a round and a half, and two of us just gives up. Roll, you know, he gets he gets put in, a, in an arm triangle. And he rolls away from it, and that that just makes more torque on your neck and finishes you. He didn't know not to do that. He he doesn't have, or he didn't have takedown defense other than the dude used to play rugby. Um, he's crazy athletic, very fast. He would just use his athleticism. All right, if this guy takes me down, I get back up, and then I knock him out. Well, he didn't knock Sergey Sergey Spivak out because Spivak just kept coming at him with the wrestling. Didn't, didn't, you know, find it. So back at the beginning of the year, Ty realizes he needs a change. He's been training in Australia. You know, he's trained with, like, Mark Hunt, who's a good enough training partner and, like, a veteran. But he's not a guy that um, is somebody that is going to be very technical, is going to help you advance your game. Tyson Pedro's in his camp. He's another F fighter. And he realizes, like, okay, I'm as good as I'm going to get with this, with this training. So he comes to American Kickboxing Academy. You know who is in the wrestling room at AKA? Daniel Cormier, Cain Velasquez, plenty of other UFC heavyweights. Is this the infamous gym in New Mexico? Uh, it's it's in California. It's where Khabib trains out of in, in the U.S. It's where Luke oh, okay. Rockhold was out of. I mean, these, this you. is one of the most decorated MMA gyms. He comes in, and you know he's low man on the totem pole now. That is great for Tai Tuavasa. He went for being the big fish. The guy that was in the UFC, you know, uh, being cocky to, all right, I've lost three straight fights. You know, the, 
DC has is talked about him a lot this week. DC, some really funny stories. Like they were together when the pandemic hit, and they had to go to Safeway and trying to like find food. And two of us have bought like six pounds of corned beef because that's all he could find. And DC's like, "What are you doing? You don't want to eat all that corned beef." But um, point of point of this is that you know he's on the mat with DC. The very first day he showed up to AKA, they put him in with DC for five five minute rounds, and DC kicked the crap out of him for twenty five minutes. That is what this guy needed. He needed somebody to do it. He's also taking his diet very seriously, it seems like. Um, he's talked about it. He said, you know, I, I used to just eat what I wanted, and I would cut the weight. I used to drink in camp here and there. I would take two or three days, I would drink, and then I'd stop. So he's not drinking anything at all, this, this training camp. He's eating well. And I think you see it. His face looks much more square, doesn't look puffed out. Uh, you see it in his arms, too. His arms look defined. You know, he's always been a big dude, but he's carries around some flab he's you know i believe half samoan half aboriginal if i remember that correctly um but you know both guys both both backgrounds that can get a little bloated um and he's been bloated so now he's in probably the best shape he's ever been in since he was 18 he's been wrestling like crazy so that shouldn't be a big issue against a guy like struve because struve at 611 is not going to blast double or or you know um look to catch a kick you're not pending down at 611 unless the guy throws a head kick um he does have good trips truth that's the risk here he he'll, he'll tie you up both of your arms with double underhooks and just use his seven feet of leverage to torque and and throw you to the mat you have to hope that tuavasa has got enough strength from this training enough discipline to see that coming to stonewall it and and separate we're gonna find out you know it's it's not without risk but you know, you alluded to it. More and more, I'm all over Tuavasa. Uh, I say that with a, an asterisk of, you know, he's my boy, and I want him to win here <laughs> real bad. But Struve is just shop-worn. If you can get to his chin, you can knock him out. Um, I think Tuavasa is the athlete to do it, to get in and out. Because Struve has to stay at distance. He kicks you, he kicks you, uh, and then all of a sudden you get your, your opportunity to come in and hit him. And then he ties you up. So you got to make the most of that opportunity when you get to come in, hit him. When he ties you up, you got to push off, get off the fence. I think the dedicated, in shape Tuavasa is more than Struve can handle at this point. And I'm going to take Tuavasa. I think it's going to be a first or second round knockout and, and be a great DraftKings value. But if you tell me, I've told you why you got to be careful. Going to put some Struve in some lineups as well because he could definitely submit Tai Tuavasa after tripping him to the mat and Ty is just gassed and gives up because. That's still who he is. All right. <clears throat> We've been doing this podcast for maybe six months now, on and off. Like, the crappier cards, we kind of take off. Uh, that was probably the best persuasion to an underdog or talking me onto another fighter that you've ever done. So, well done. Uh, we'll move on to the next fight. All right. We do apologize for going a little longer on this podcast, but this is probably one of the more in-depth breakdowns we've ever had for an entire card. Next fight on the card is Alex Oliveira, the Cowboy at 8,500 versus Shavkat Rachmanov, 7,700. This is a welterweight bout. Oliveira is a minus 115 favorite, uh, but for a guy priced at 7,700, Rachmanov is getting minus 105 odds at the moment. Oliveira is a pretty ripped specimen, and he fights a lot. He's fought 18 times over the last five and a half years. He's only four and four in his last eight fights. And in the last few fights, we've seen his fights go to the cards. Very little volumes being returned. He hasn't had a, over 70 points on DraftKings in over two years. 
Uh, Rachmanov is 12-0 as a professional, and his last 10 wins have all come inside the distance. Highlight reel is impressive, but it's 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 his submissions that are more impressive, in my opinion. Um, his striking is pretty good. It's above average. He won via TKO after punching one guy in the gut, <laughs> and, and uh, his opponent just kind of keeled over. Uh, but that says a lot more about his opponent than it does Rachmanov. Um in my notes, I had Oliveira to win. I think in this one, I might. It's so hard to pick against Oliveira, and I hate doing it. And I know you may feel differently, but I think I might take the dog in uh, Rachmanov in this fight. I'll sprinkle in Oliveira a little bit in, in my GPP lineups if, if I'm building the 20 that I hope to build. Uh, but damn, yeah, I, I'm i thinking Rachmanov maybe wins in his UFC debut. Am I crazy? Am I crazy? Not at all. Uh, here's the guys the UFC has tried to book Shavkat Rachmanov against. They wanted him to debut against Barstos Fabinski uh, in a card that was going to be in Kazakhstan. It was obviously scrapped with COVID. Then they booked him to fight against Ramazan Amiv. Uh, Ram- uh, Rachmanov had to withdraw with injury. Then they booked him against Eliza Zaleski, who withdrew from this fight and Olivera Zaleski's replacement. Those are three UFC veterans, good level of competition the ufc doesn't seem to have any doubts about what they've got here in, in Rachmanov. Uh, he's big he's he's got powerful striking um very slick submissions for for where he came from but uh you know it's level of competition's not huge um you know he's fighting questionable guys you know you got you got some guys with like an 11 and 3 record and some guys with a uh, 3 and 2 record he actually the guy with 3 and 2 is Jung Yan Park who we saw beat John Phillips last week um so he's got to win over him you know who's uh, uh, already in the UFC um you know it's it's if if Rachmanov wins I'm not going to say it's definitely inside the distance because this could go to a decision like any fight. But I think if he's having success, he's going to be able to finish Cowboy Oliveira, which is not an easy proposition. Oliveira's definitely got his fleas as far as who he is as a fighter at this point. He's lost that like crazy explosiveness. Now he's just kind of like holding on. Uh, he's basically the Brazilian Mike Perry, which is interesting because he lost to Mike Perry. <laughs> Like, you know, uh, losing to Mike Perry takes you down a big peg in, in my book. Um, and he didn't just, like, lose to Mike Perry. Like, Mike Perry lifted him up and slammed him down. Um, you know, Nicholas Dalby fought a really tight fight against him and beat him. And then he beat Max Griffin and Peter Sabata, who are just meh. Uh, Sabata's probably done in the UFC at this point. Griffin is, like, a guy they hold on to to have people debut against. So, um Rachmanov is, is definitely the trendier pick because of that odds value. He's going to be a very popular cash play. I'm probably going to put him in my cash lineup, just not going to have to fight uh, people who might have a, that nice value in there. But Rachmanov will be my pick to win. All right. Glad we're kind of on the same page. I thought I was a little nuts uh, based on a guy that I had never heard of coming into this card, but we'll move on to the next fight. Uh, heavy favorite here in this light heavyweight bout between uh, Dayun Jung, 9,400 versus Sam, Al- Sam Alvey, 6,800. Jung comes in as a minus 345 favorite. Uh, he's impressed in his first two UFC fights, gaining a first-round TKO in his last fight and an impressive standing guillotine submission against uh, Kadis uh, Ibrahimov uh, last year. Alvey seems like a nice dude. 
Wears a massive, big-ass smile on his face. You could probably punch him in the face ten times, and he'll still be smiling at you. That's why uh, they call him Smiling Sam out. <laughs> he's uh, running a four-fight losing streak. He's three and six in his last nine fights in the UFC. Even in some of his wins via decision, he may not even top 70 points. And at 6,800, you know, that's not even the greatest value. Um, obviously, the pick here is Jong for an inside-the-distance win. Uh, if I need an absolute punt uh, to steal a win, then I might throw a few shares of Alvi. Other than that, this is one of the easier fights to read, I feel. I'm going to disagree with you there. Uh, so, Jung, yes, he beat Kadis Abragamov. This was Abragamov's um, UFC debut as a late replacement. The fight was in Korea, I believe. Uh, Abragamov came out and just landed on uh, Jung with impunity for the entire first round. Crazy pace. I think 100 significant strikes in the first round. Doubles him up in significant strikes. And is just gassed. Is absolutely gassed. Makes it through a second round. But then in the third round, he's just leaning on Jung's legs. Trying to, you know, will himself to a, a double leg takedown. Can't do it. And Jung just grabs a hold of his neck. And the tap is super quick. Because Abragamov is presumably breathing as hard as he can breathe. And his heart is pumping as hard as it can pump. Um so that actually tells me more about Jung being a bad fighter than a good fighter. He knocked out Mike Rodriguez. I believe that was also a fight in Korea. Um, Rodriguez traveling internationally. You know, maybe his chin was compromised, dehydrated, jet lag, weird body clock stuff going on. It was a one-punch knockout. Those things will happen. Sam Alvey is really durable. Um, despite some recent finishes by uh, Jimmy Crute and Antonio Noguera, um, Alvi was really unhappy about both of those. I believe they were both the same ref. Who was that ref? Um, Mark Goddard. Yeah. And he, he, after the loss with Crute, he gets up and he actually like yells at Mark Goddard. Like, I told you not to stop it. Um, you know, I, 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 that tells me like he wasn't out cold, obviously. Um, he's probably going to tell whoever the ref is in this fight. Hopefully not Mark Goddard. Uh, you know, <laughs> just let me let me get beat up. I, I that's what I want. And some refs will do that. They'll let you take that extra punishment uh, and, and not stop it quickly. Um, he took a he took a split decision loss to Ryan Span in his last fight, and he was getting teed off on. So if he had chin issues, it would have happened in the in the Span fight. He would have got knocked out. Um, he's a solid grappler. You're not going to take him down easily. I just don't see how Jung wins this fight. Besides out voluming Alvi, which can happen. But Alvi's got a really hard left hand. He's a southpaw. And if Jung is going to go the volume approach, now he's opened himself up to that counter. And I just think he's possibly going to get hurt. He's possibly going to get knocked down. Um, so it's going to be a close decision if it goes to a decision. I don't like the odds on Jung. I don't like the price. I think Alvi, um, you know, yes, he doesn't, you know, put up a lot of stats, but his opponents also have a harder time putting up stats because of, you know, he's Ali just kind of stands there and he waits. And if, if you're going to come hit him, he has got that hard hook waiting to come back your way. So, you know, Ryan Spann landed 51 significant strikes. Um, Noguera in a second round finish, 26 strikes. Um, Ramazan Amiv in a decision, 38 significant strikes with a takedown. Like, it's hard to score against Sam Alvey. So uh, if anything, I would say it's a total pass on DraftKings. 
maybe mass builds are going to include some Alvi. And I would say Alvi's actually a decent bet as the underdog um, because I just don't buy that Dong Jung is is a, a, a favorite in line with what he's going off at. This is interesting. This kind of blows my mind a little bit. I think I might have to take another look at the playbook when it comes out tomorrow. And uh, <laughs> it's a sneaky one. Like it, on the surface, you're kind of like, oh, you know, Sam Alvey kind of washed. Dallin Jung got two nice wins, but that, that's why you're listening to this podcast. You got to get the, the the deeper knowledge. No, I think that's a good point because, like, you know, the playbook, you know, is good. You can listen to, you can watch the ESPN shows like UFC Live or whatever the hell ESPN does, and you know. The analyst might take the chalky favorite, but I mean, I love doing these because you can break. You just seem to know every guy's like last couple fights, and you can tell the story of like you know how they got there, and, you know if they gassed out, things like that. Yeah. Uh, we'll move on to the next fight on the card: uh, women's flyweight bout between Miranda Maverick, ninety three hundred, versus Liana Jojua at sixty nine hundred. Maverick is a is a pretty heavy favorite at minus four thirty. Uh, she's making her UFC debut. She was supposed to fight uh, Mara Barella over the summer, that was canceled. She's only 23. She's five, seven and two, riding a five-fight win streak. Uh, possesses possesses a lot of submission upside, and she'll have a three-inch reach advantage over Jojua. I don't necessarily want to take Liana lightly, uh, especially after her submission win over Deanna Belbitza over the summer. Um, Maverick does come with a solid fighting pedigree. I might fade this fight unless you can talk me on to Maverick here, but you know, we mention it almost every podcast. It just seems like there's there's a women's underdog submission in play every card. And I, I really don't want to discount Jujua because I, I, I counted her out last time and she, and she blew up my slate. Yeah. I'll keep this one quick as the guy who called Jujua by submission last time. You don't got to worry about it here. Miranda Maverick. <laughs> uh, she's debuting. That <laughs> it's that easy. Uh, I mean, it's a women's fight that could involve a good level of grappling, but like, Diana Belbita is trash. I don't know why people thought Diana Belbita was like some world beater because she took a beating at the hands of Molly McCann and had like one good round. Um, and she was going to beat Leanna Jojua if she didn't lay down into her guard and get armbarred. So Miranda Maverick, smarter than that. She's a good grappler. She's a little spark plug, very strong. I think she is a big problem for Jojua. Um, you know, Sarah Morris looked great against Leanna Jojua. Maverick can do the exact same thing. Uh, she's going to be stronger than her. It's it's probably going to probably going to end inside the distance. Actually, in my opinion, I think Maverick either submits Jojua or ground and pounds her uh, into a stoppage. Love it, nice and quick. Uh, we'll move on to our last fight of the preview, very first fight on the card, the Dan Malin special. Uh, Joel Alvarez, Alvarez nine thousand versus Alexander uh, Yakovlev. 7,200, it's a lightweight bout. Despite the heavier price tag, Alvarez was only a minus 155 favorite um, earlier this morning. In his last nine fights, he's 8-1. Seven of those have come via submission. Neither fighter throws a significant amount of strikes, which always worries me or anyone who typically tries to build DFS lineups that targets volume. Um, both are under three significant strikes per minute. Uh, Yakovlev is a sucker for letting fights go to the cards. He's an absolutely boring fighter. Uh, unless you can tell me any different, I can't think of any reason to fight him. I mean, just the peripherals look really bad. The record, the odds, the price tag, the volume, it all just looks 
really, really bad. I'll take Alvarez and what could be an underwhelming opener. I might actually fade the opener. I'm not going to lie. And I never do that. It's a tough one to roster in GPPs. Uh, the line is off, though. Joel Alvarez, what has he done to deserve to be a favorite? Uh, yeah, I kind of agree. I, you know, um, he he loses his UFC debut against Demir Ismagulov and gets the doors beat off of him. Ismagulov is kind of, I mean, he's he's a wrestle boxer from Kazakhstan, I believe, but like solid, solid performance. Alvarez no at no point looked competitive. Then Alvarez beats uh, Danilo Belwardo, who is an Italian dude that the card was in Europe and, you know, is one of those guys that's like never going to fight again in the UFC unless like they call him in the middle of a pandemic kind of deal. <laughs> and then he, Joe Duffy tried to take him down. Joe Duffy's a boxer. I don't know why he came out and tried to take down Joel Alvarez, but left his head in a guillotine and got submitted. So yes, Alvarez has a dangerous submission game and he's very opportunistic but you go and you look at his regional tape and it's literally guys like laying down into his guard with one arm in and like handing him triangle chokes and, and uh, arm bars, uh, you know, he's got a lot of guillotine wins cause he's long. So he's dangerous on that front. And I think people are also reading into Yakolev losing to Zach Cummins three fights ago by submission, like as, as the justification, like, Oh, he can lose by submission. That fight against Cummings was at 170. This is a fight at 155. So Yakolev's more of a 155er. Cummings is now up at 185 where he belongs, and he also missed weight for the Yakolev fight. So he was fighting a massive person that happened to get on top of him in a crucifix, finished him with a straight armbar um, from crucifix. Like that just doesn't happen very often in MMA, um, and it tells you the size discrepancy and strength discrepancy that existed there. So I'm going to write the Cummings loss off. Um, he was he was really close to beating Roosevelt Roberts, Yakolev, that is. And Roosevelt Roberts is 10 times the fighter that Alvarez probably is, even though Roosevelt Roberts has had his issues lately. Um, I just think Yakolev is probably careful here, as he always is. He's going to pick with the striking. He's probably going to have some effective grappling. And as long as he doesn't leave his head in a choke, in a, you know, in a triangle or something, I think he comes away with the win. So... It's an interesting cash game play for me. It does have a little risk because of the submission threat, but I don't know. I don't like Joel Alvarez, and I'm going to bet against him. Um, and you may want to use him in cash if you can't figure out somebody else to save uh, along with salary. All right, so now we get to, I guess, the end of the podcast. We'll start wrapping it up. Uh, what's your cash core looking like? Aside, I mean, I understand we're probably stacking Habib and uh, Gaith G. Are we also pairing them with, uh, what was his name, uh, Rachmanov? Yeah, Rachmanov's kind of a must, I think, just because everyone's going to play him. If he does get a finish, um, you know, you're, you're, you're going to be facing an uphill battle. If you want to fade him in, in cash, I'm also fine with that. I'm, I don't mind that in MMA because if he has an underwhelming performance, you just got a, a free spot. Uh, where everybody else had him and, mm -hmm. and got dinged. He could still win a decision and score, you know, 60 points. Um, so you just have to beat that threshold with, with your replacement fighter. Uh, interested in Nathaniel Wood in the cash game core uh, because I don't think he gets finished. I think he's got a good shot to win or at least see the scorecards with solid uh, pace backing him. Miranda Maverick, I wouldn't quite call her a core play, but out of the big favorites, she's the one I'm most comfortable with. Um, 
you know, you, you, you've got you've got Ankaliyev at eighty nine hundred. I think it's a nice price on him. It doesn't come without risk. So, you know, you've got a guy in Kudalaba that could obviously end your night in a bad way. I don't see it happening. But when we're talking building cash games, that's not the kind of play I would suggest for a cash game. But I'd be fine if you used Ankaliyev in your in your cash game. Okay. Uh, lastly, this is one of the bigger shows of the year. Probably the biggest. Uh, what advice can you give to newer MMA DFS players? You know, we typically see a lot of inexperienced players throw some lineups into the mix with these larger cards. They may not be playing the fight night cards. Should they play more cash games, more single entry contests, maybe three entry max contests? Like, what is your advice for lineup structure or just contest entry for for newer MMA DFS players? Yeah, definitely the single entry and the three entries. I'm a proponent of, you know, if it's not a contest you can max enter, you should really think about, do you want to enter this? Or are, you, are you getting the most out of your money? Good point. Uh, cash games are tough in DFS. Um, they are. Even, like, I've gotten a knack for it over the years. You can just get whitewashed on a slate because you get two fights wrong. You know, you, you, you thought you thought Ankaliyev was safe and he got knocked out and he got you no points and... You know, you thought Casey Kenny was was not going to finish Nathaniel Wood, and Nathaniel Wood gets dropped because Nathaniel Wood does have a little bit of a shaky chin. Like stuff can go wrong in a hurry. <laughs> so if you're going to put your money uh, on the line, you know, maximize your return is kind of my thinking, and and your your you know your excitement. You know, you'll you'll, you'll get the most out of your your entries. Um, and then lastly, you know, you do need to think about differentiation. So last week is a good example. Everybody was all over Chan Sun Jung, Korean Zombie, uh, over Brian Ortega, myself included. Um, I believe Jung was in the 50% range, and Ortega was you know, about 10% less owned. That's really nice leverage, and if you pick that fight right, um, you had to fight against 10% less people. Um, and it was also one of the highest scoring fights on the night, because it was the main event. So... Just underdogs in main events have been very profitable uh, in recent memory, and especially in the pandemic. Um, you know, things are just a little bit more variant because of all of these extra variables. Um, so, you know, Justin Gaethje fits that mold to a T. Um, be careful with popular fights. You know, Whitaker Cannoneer, we talked about it. it it's not a must-have fight because it, it could be a decision. It could be a slower pace. Um, and then, you know, heavyweights... Heavyweights be heavyweights, man. Uh, people get knocked out all the time. I think somebody's getting knocked out or submitted in both of these fights uh, between Struve, Tuavasa, and Volkov Harris. All right. Really good stuff. We went a long, little long this week. We do apologize. Uh, tried to be as in-depth as possible for the biggest card of the year, but uh, Mike will be on the lookout for the playbook and the Cornerman and uh, Best Bets video for Wager Alarm. Mike, thank you so much for your time. Best of luck to you, and best of luck to the FA Nation.